praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, thank you this morning for being here. Uh, last week, we started a new adventure, uh, really studying a powerful book, a, really a set of books, First and Second Timothy. Uh, these letters are written from the Apostle Paul, uh, written to a young pastor whose name was Timothy. And uh, the importance of First and Second Timothy cannot be overstated. Uh, I want to encourage you to be reading and reading ahead and studying and restudying with us over these next several weeks and months. And uh, the reason it's important, number one, it's Scripture. And we believe in the Word of God uh, has the power to transform lives. The other th- reason that I, I said last week that this is so important is that as a young pastor myself, as I've been reading this and studying, I am uh, receiving it in that light. Um, as a young pastor myself, and Timothy was a product of discipleship. He had spent over 20 years or 20 years with Paul at that point when he's receiving this letter, and uh, it was a personal letter, and I I want you to remember that it was a letter to Timothy for the church, and I believe it's a letter to me as your pastor for this church, and as we track through that that's going to be really, really key. The third thing is that there are issues that still challenge the church today. In fact, a lot of them that we're going to track through. Uh, but we said last week there are really two overall themes kind of uh, nestled through First and Second Timothy, and those themes are doctrine and godliness. As we talked about that, we said that sound doctrine and godliness are absolutely important. Orthodoxy and practice, the way we think and then the way that we live our lives. And last week, right out of the gun, Paul addresses some false teachers that were tackling or are going against sound doctrine. And Timothy, a young pastor, like I said, 35 years old, wanting he's wanting to resign, uh, to be reassigned somewhere. He's struggling, certainly. Uh, he may have been asking the question, is it worth it? All of this heartache and all the turmoil that was happening at the church in Ephesus. Because what was happening, we talked about this last week, is there were prominent people in the church that were teaching uh, false doctrine, falsehood. And and Timothy's saying, what can I do? I'm just a young pastor. What can I do? So Paul, through these books, or through these letters, affirms that Timothy, yes, is called. He's called to stay. And then he gives him the authority to stay and the authority to deal with some of these false teachers. And uh, and then Paul continues uh, in the next few verses, which we're going to study this morning, to strengthen Timothy's resolve by giving him a personal testimony of God's grace. How many, just say God's grace with me. God's grace. And what Paul says, look, if God can, and by the way, has saved me, if God can save me, and if God can use me, then Timothy, you are able to be used as well. And with that picture in our minds, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want you to stand to honor God's word. And we're going to look at the uh, verses 12 through 17, and we're just going to believe that these words will ring true in our heart, that it will challenge us and inspire us and uh, bring us to a point where we are thankful for what God has done. Let's look, look at it together. It says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he has considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. 
Even though I was once a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words. Lord, I thank you that you instructed Paul to write these to a pastor that was struggling. Lord, I thank you that these words can be life to us this morning. As we consider grace today, I pray that we would be just bathed and just overjoyed because of your grace in our lives. Help us to realize it. Help us to walk in it. And we give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated this morning. Amen. I want to start with verse 15 because there's something that says uh, that is uh, that is mentioned here that is unique to the pastoral epistles. It says there, this is a trustworthy saying. Five times in the pastoral epistles, which again were First and Second Timothy and Titus, and remember Titus was written in between First and, and Second Timothy. In only those five times in the entire New Testament is this phrase found. And what it's getting at here is that what Timothy was reading from the Apostle Paul would have been recognized. He, it was recognizable in the early church. Paul is saying to Timothy, look, you already know this. It's an axiom. The history a little bit, by the time that Paul was uh, in prison for the first time, there were some sayings in the church, some creeds, some summaries of faith and truth, some key doctrines that needed to be affirmed and accepted and reaffirmed, and this is one of those. And really, what verse 15 is, is a condensing of the gospel story. Every word was chosen carefully, I believe, and it was a summary of the gospel message. And with that idea, we can look at it, and it says this, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And how many say, praise the Lord for that? God can transform lost people. Sinners become saints. And there are lots of examples that we could talk about. How many have heard of the story of Nikki Cruz? He was saved under David Wilkinson's ministry the, uh, through Teen Challenge, and the cross and the switchblade kind of captures that. But this gang member, this bad guy, ends up serving God and sharing God's word forever. Also, another one like that is Billy Sunday, a professional baseball player, would actually stop and mock Christians, uh, the story is told. He would hurl insults. He hated Christians. He got a, God got a hold of his life. He was radically saved and actually became an evangelist himself. 
Very similar story with uh, Chuck Colson's story. You may have heard him on the radio or read some of his things. In his book, Born Again, he chronicles a similar account where he was, a, he was a, not a Christ follower, in fact, a, really a Christ hater, and then God got a hold of him and now is serving and evangelizing. In Scripture, there are many stories that come back to that same idea that Christ came into the world to save sinners. We can look at Mary Magdalene's story. Seven demons were cast out. We can look at the tax collectors, Zacchaeus being one of those. Uh, Not a Christ follower, surrenders his heart and begins to follow Christ. Blind Bartimaeus, the thief on the cross, on and on. Conversions, coming back to the idea that Christ came into the world to save sinners. But the most remarkable, arguably the most dramatic, most dynamic salvation experience, church, was that of the Apostle Paul. And some commentators say he was the world's worst sinner. Say that with me. World's worst sinner. And you're saying, really? The Apostle Paul? And we'll talk more about that. But yes, absolutely. And in Paul's testimony, it's repeated over and over throughout Scripture, the New Testament. Luke makes the account in Acts chapter 9, shares it again in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. Paul writes his testimony of his own conversion, uh, again, and of what God has done, the grace of God in Galatians chapter 1 and in Galatians 2. In Philippians 3, it's accounted for, and here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is saying, look, this is my story. This is where I came from. This is my testimony. And I, when I read it and as I study it, it's almost like Paul is giddy about his testimony. He is totally amazed by where he came from. Now, I just want to pause here because sometimes we forget where we have come from or we've forgotten how awesome the grace of God is. The grace of God is incredible, and we're going to study that. And when you read these few verses, uh, there are some that will say, man, is this a digression already in the letter? But I don't believe it is. If you read it in flow and you understand what's happening, he starts off writing about false teachers. He says, stand up for sound doctrine. And now what Paul does, he reminds Timothy that he can only do what he's called to do because of the grace of God. And I believe that that word that is for some of us today, that we can only do what God has called us to do in your lives, in your circumstances, at your school, in your work situation, in your marriage. It's only the grace of God that will bring us through. And that's what we're going to study this morning. And we'll actually see this morning that Paul identifies six tributes to grace, six elements, six things that can be seen here. And I want to kind of give those to you. And then when we get to the last one, you'll know it's time to go. And, uh, and by the way, um, since I'm not talking for a whole week, I'm just going to take as long as I want this morning. No, I'm just kidding. No, no we'll be on time. All right, so these are the six. So we're going to look at the source of grace, the need for grace, the power of grace, then the measure of grace, the purpose of grace, and then the response of grace. And, uh, but before we do that, we need to answer the question, what is grace? What is grace? If you're taking notes, I want to give you just a, uh, 10 seconds to write down a little 
what is grace? What, what comes to mind when you think of grace? And I'll let you just kind of uh, capture that. And, uh, and many of you, I believe, are probably going to write this, that it is God's unmerited favor. How many have heard that before? Kind of simplified grace is God's unmerited favor. Well, I ran across a definition that is not three words. It's actually probably like 40 words. And I want to share this with you. You don't have to write it down, but there's some key points in this. This is from uh, John Lindell, a message that he was speaking on this. And, um, and listen what it says. Grace is God's loving forgiveness, exemption from judgment, and promise of temporal and eternal blessings given to guilty and condemned sinners freely without any worthy worthiness on their part and based on nothing they have done or failed to do now i know that's a mouthful i want to give a challenge if anybody is interested in 10 american dollars and this is, probably doesn't appeal to any of the adults but some of the students listen and maybe they need 50 dollars. i don't know but uh, i'm going to do 10 because i'm not sure but any students that if you want to come after service and get a photocopy of this and if you can memorize this by next sunday i will give you ten dollars each all right so you do it that's a challenge but let's look at it again grace is god's loving forgiveness exemption from judgment and promise of temporal and eternal blessing given to guilty and condemned sinners by the way that's us freely without any worthiness on their part and based on nothing they have done or failed to do it's a mouth mouthful but let's look at the first thing, the first element that Paul describes is the source of grace. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12, look what it says. It says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is he thanking there? He's giving credit to Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he describes whose grace it is. It says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. It's God's grace that's given to us. And then in verse 17, as he describes the doxology, he says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invincible, the only God, he's describing who and where this grace comes from. Paul is grateful in, this, in these verses and for, for grace. And he gives Jesus Christ all, 100% of the credit for it. You say, well, why? Well, because Jesus is the source of our grace. We see this throughout the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, We are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We studied this a few months back, but I want to bring you back to this because it, uh, I'm going to mention this a little later too. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Look what it says. It says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This is, that's, again, Paul saying, Look, my background is, is just wretched. But, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, 
But again, it's, even though Paul is a hard worker, he doesn't give any credit to himself. He says, no, not I, but the grace of God that was within me. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, we see a similar sentiment. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Although I am less than the least of all God's people. Again, he's diminishing himself. He says, don't look to me. But he says, this grace was given to me. And again, who gave it? The source of grace is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 um, there are some commentators that take a lot of time with just that verse. John MacArthur is one of those, and he sees four things, and this is just kind of a side note uh, from these six. Uh, he sees four things in related relation to uh, verse 12, and I want to give those to you quickly. Uh, he sees an electing grace, where Paul, his conversion in Acts chapter 9, that God chose grace, or God chose uh, Paul, uh, that he was separated uh, uh, from uh, for the gospel to preach the gospel that he was elected in that way the second thing is an enabling grace um, that in enabling him to walk in salvation uh, look what it says there uh, who has given me strength we see the same thing in philippians 4 13 um, your strength is sufficient uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ephesians 6, verse 10, when he talks about spiritual warfare and the armor of God, it's that strength that comes. It's an enabling grace. Then there's an entrusting grace uh, that where it says here, it says that, uh, and he considered me faithful. That word is really trustworthy. And the idea is that when Paul was called, he was not trustworthy at all. It was grace that made Paul trustworthy. And then the last thing, an employing grace. And um, it says, appointing me to his service. Appointment to a lowly service. God made Paul a servant, allowed Paul to serve with humility, but with great blessing. I give those to you if you want to study those a little deeper. It's certainly worth your time. We can't get into all of that this morning. But again, it is all from Jesus, the source is Jesus. That was number one. Let's move on to number two, the need for grace. And I just want to say this, and I, I know many of you know this, but we all need this grace. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Listen, before Paul's conversion, he was an absolute mess. This was, an, it, this was vivid in Paul's mind. A blasphemer. He was a slanderer of God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Very interesting verse here. Acts 26, he's ta uh, this is about the Apostle Paul. Verse 11 says this, Many a time, Paul said, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to a foreign cities to persecute Christians. He was a blasphemer, and he even tried to get others to blaspheme God. The second thing is that he was a persecutor. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we see Paul persecuting. At the beginning of Acts chapter 9, he's uh, spitting out threats. 
But by verse 21, he's had this conversion on the road uh, to Damascus. And uh, when others heard about this conversion, what did the disciples think? They thought, no way has Paul turned his heart. They thought it was a trick. They were afraid. They didn't believe it because his persecution was so strong. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor. He was a violent man. He had no regard to human life. He was a bully in the worst sense, and he got pleasure from it. He was a mass murderer. The Apostle Paul. When I say the world's worst sinner, the reality is that Paul was a desperate sinner, a mass murderer, violently persecuting uh, God, hating, Christ-rejecting. And the point is, for us, I believe, when we, need to, we see the need, is that we all need to remember where we have came from or what God has spared us from to keep us in His good graces. And listen, we all need, at one point or another, and really almost daily, we need the grace of God. The third thing that we see is the power of grace. And this is exciting. Look at verse 13. It says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Verse 16 says this, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy. Why? So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter where you've been, the power of grace is greater. Because the need is so great, it, is, it takes an incredible power of grace to forgive and to help. I love what Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, that, and Paul knew what he was saying when he wrote this, that where sin abounds, grace is all the more. Grace, the idea there is grace superabounds. And Paul was living proof of that. He was mercied, we see in verse 13 and 16. You say, well, what is mercy? I saw this this week. I thought it was interesting that mercy has to do with misery. Grace has to do with guilt. Grace takes away the guilt and mercy takes away the misery that accompanied the guilt. Isn't that amazing? That's what God does. And for Paul, his life was transformed through the power of grace and he experienced mercy and, uh, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful picture in Paul's life, the power that was at work. Number four, we answer the question, to what measure do we get this grace? And I've already alluded to it, the measure of grace, to what extent? And it says in verse 14, it says that we receive the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Abundantly, church. More than we deserve. Exceedingly abundantly. A soup, it super abounded. And so if you've got a lot of sin in your life, there's a lot of grace for you. This is why Paul was so thankful and so grateful because he'd been forgiven so much. And then look what it says as it continues. The, the, uh, it poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Those are bonuses that you get faith and love. 
with the grace of God. By grace, you're saved through faith, Scripture says. And so God, what He does, He gives us grace super abundantly, and He gives you the capacity then to love God and to love others. Isn't that incredible? That's what God does. And He does it without reserve. He overflows. He pours it into our lives. And we just need to receive that grace. Number five we, is the purpose of grace. And this is, this is incredible when you, when you really study this. Verse 15, this is a trustworthy saying, deserves full, uh, full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Verse 16, but for this very reason I was shown mercy, right, in me, the worst of sinner. Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Those words there, and we want to remember that Paul, he really believed that he was the worst. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians chapter 3, and in many other places. And my guess is probably true in God's eyes. No one's arguing. No one's stepping up. None of the other disciples are saying, no, it wasn't that bad. No, Paul was a dirty, rotten sinner. And you ask the question, I want to ask the question, why would God save Paul? Some of you may think, well, to keep him out of hell. And no, that's not why. That was just a benefit. You say, well, maybe so he can get to heaven, right? I mean, Paul, God wants all sinners to be saved, right? Well, no, that's just a benefit. How about you say, well, so he could write all these epistles and write a third of the New Testament. No, God could have chose anybody to do that. Well, you say, well, he was called to preach, right? So that's why God saved him. No, anybody could do that. And I'm a good example of that, right? <laughs> the reason God saved Paul, John MacArthur talks about, is because God wanted to save the world's worst Christian, the world's worst pagan, and make him the world's greatest Christian. Why? To show his power of his grace, to put himself on display. You see, the purpose of salvation, church, is to glorify God and to demonstrate his power and his long-suffering in us. And each and every one of us Every single one of us here can be in the same, pit, same situation where God's grace is on display for others to see. I want you to start thinking of yourself in that light. Think about your last week. Was God's grace exemplified in your goings and in your comings? At home, was God's grace available? Was it seen in your life? at work, at school, whatever, wherever you've been. Why did God save Paul? God saved Paul so Jesus could be put on display. And I believe that God desires that in each of our lives, no matter where we are. That brings us to the last thing, number six, the response to grace. And really, as we read this section from 12 to 17, 
chapter, verse 12 and verse 17 are somewhat like a bookend uh, to this discussion. Verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the appropriate response? It is to be grateful, to, ha- be gr- to have gratitude, to have a thankful heart. And Paul recounts this, and it's bubbling up within him as he's writing to his friend, Timothy, who he has invested for 20 years. He's saying, look, this is the grace of God. This is the response. I am thankful. I thank Christ Jesus. In verse 17, then he describes who Christ is. He says, now to king, the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The idea there is that he's the king of all ages. He's the supremely sovereign one. He's immortal. He's imperishable. He's incomprehensible. He's incorruptible. There's no death, no decay, no or loss of any strength. And to him, to Jesus, be all glory and honor forever and ever. And he puts an amen at the end of that. As a resolve, let it be, so be it. Let God receive all the glory, all the praise for it. John MacArthur says, you cannot exegete doxology, which that's what that is. It's describing who God is. He says, you just say it and then you rejoice. And I love that. And Bobby, I'm going to ask that you come, and we're going to do something together. We're going to uh, practice saying and then rejoicing. I'm going to ask that you would repeat this after, or say this with me. And uh, and let's just quote this. We can uh, see it there. Uh, let's go to the the First uh, Timothy one seventeen. It says this: Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I would give you guys uh, maybe a C. You may, some of you passed. Some of you didn't pass. But we're going to do this again. And I'm going to ask that you stand this time with a little umph, with a little authority. Let's say this together. On the count of three. One, two, three. Now. To the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. John MacArthur says, you just say it and then you rejoice. So let's try it one more time, all right? On the count of three. One, and I'm not going to strain, but you strain, okay? One, two, three. Now. To the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you, God. We honor you, Lord. We praise your name. Hallelujah, Lord. We praise your name. Lord, let our response be one of gratefulness. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, you're so incredible. You're so incredible. As you remain standing, we're going to wrap up this morning. I want to encourage you, if you are living in sin this morning, if you're struggling in any way, 
I want you to know that there is no sin that is too big for God to forgive. In this particular passage, he talks about blaspheming God. If Listen, and some people question, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Listen, if you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you would not care. You wouldn't be here this morning. Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You put that together with the verse that says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. And this morning, I want us to examine our hearts, to bring it to a place where the rubber meets the road. And I want to ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? When you think about the power of grace, and you think about your incredible need for grace, and then you think about the measure of grace that is possible to be poured out, we can receive that this morning. And I'm wondering how many this morning need a special dose of grace this week, today, in our lives. Would you just raise your hand if that's you? And when we say we need that, and we understand that from a deep, deep sense, what that does is it puts us in a place where God, He can pour out His grace. He can do the impossible. His power is great enough for you and in your circumstance. I want to sing this song that's been just stirring in my heart all morning long in response to this. It's just, it's a coming to the Lord. Lord, I confess, I bring my sin to you. And when we sing these words, then when we get to the, to the idea that, Lord, I need you, I want you to sing it out from the depths of your souls, and then we'll come back and close the service. Let's sing together. Hallelujah. Now with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your personal Savior, I'm going to ask that you would just surrender your heart to the Lord this morning and to receive Jesus. And you do that by confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in your heart. And I'm wondering if there's anyone here that needs to get their heart right with Jesus today. Just slip up your hand right where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. But if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, or maybe at one time you were serving the Lord, and today, if you were to die, you don't know if you would go to heaven. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Anybody at all? Anybody at all? See, that's me. I don't see any hands this morning. I want to keep your head bowed and eyes closed. If you're here this morning and you're identifying that you need an extra measure of grace in your life for whatever you're facing, I want you to raise your hand as well. If it just raise your hand and just keep it up. If that's you, it's saying, yes, I need the grace of God in this season of my life. I need it today in a special way more than normal i need grace if that's you and i'm your hand is raised i'm going to ask as we sing this chorus again i'm going to ask that you would come to the altar and we're just going to pray and we're going to believe that god's grace is going to pour into your life let's sing it together here we go lord i need you thank you lord thank you lord god i pray for your grace to abound in our lives. 
God, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we are up against, God, I pray that your hand of grace and mercy would just be poured out for those that came and responded, saying, I need a extra, an extra measure of grace today. Lord, I pray that they would receive that, that they would experience your grace beyond their wildest imagination. God, whether it's a financial need or a spiritual need or a relational need or maybe someone needs housing, God, I pray that you would open up the doors or, Lord, a job is needed or, or maybe a, a physical need, even like my own, God. Lord, I pray that your grace, your grace, God, would be supernatural at work. God, I pray that you're restoring families, that you are restoring what's been broken. And just like Paul's example, his testimony to Timothy, who was struggling, who was wanting to quit, God, I pray that we would hear these words from Paul. Don't quit. It's not time to give up. Take my testimony, Paul says, and let it be an example that God's grace is sufficient for us. It's sufficient for you. And God, we receive it. We receive it in Jesus' name. Now I want you to repeat after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for giving it on, on, without measure. And to the King Eternal, to the Immortal, Invisible, the only God, to you, God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. God, you're so good. You're so good. You're so good. You're so good. Praise the Lord.